Good morning. A uh, couple of chapters today from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, following on from chapter, uh, not John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Following on to chapter 8 from John, verses 1 to 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered round him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the elders first, until Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Nice to see you. Let's pray that God would speak to us through his word today. Would you join me in praying? Father God, we thank you for the scriptures. And we pray together that you'd send your Holy Spirit to give us understanding to touch our hearts. And I pray that you'd take what I've prepared and you'd speak life through it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the second sermon in a series about how to stand firm when the world is shaking. And today, it's all about having firm foundations. And I'm going to start with a story, which is not true. It's a story about someone who was appointed to a very challenging and grueling job. And they were advised, told by their people who were going to take them on, that the final thing they had to do was to go and have a health check. Well, this is pretty standard. So off they went for their health check, and they went to an impressive clinic, where they were met with an obliging, sparkly nurse in a sparkly surgery who took their blood pressure, popped them on some scales, showed them to a treadmill, took some blood tests, took their temperature, weighed them, and then disappeared behind a computer. And after rather a long pause that got longer and longer and longer, the nurse looked up and said, well, according to this, you should be eight foot six. 
Yes, the first congregation found it incredibly amusing as well. <laughs> well, the point of this little story was to amuse you, but as well, I think we accept, if you're going to take on some big undertaking, you need to check your health. Spiritually, that's certainly true. I was explaining last week that I think we're entering increasingly testing times. Increasingly, our world is shaking around us. And if you and I are going to withstand, we really should do a bit of self-examination to make sure, before we even venture out, that we are fit for purpose, that our foundations are in the right place. Because we will only be as secure in times of shaking as our foundation is secure. So what we're gonna to do today is check this out. Back in the day, I was an insurance broker, not for very long, for a couple of years or so. When you are an insurance broker, what you do is a bit like when you get your car insured, you have to tell the people who are going to insure you all about you and all about your car, and then they come up with a price. And I was going around a number of different insurers trying to get them to quote a price on a large theater in Australia. And about the fourth person I went to see, <clears throat> because there were lots of other competing companies trying to get the same thing done, they looked at me and they said, Rupert, do, do you know, because you haven't told me, but do you know that there are serious cracks in the foundation of his theater? Now, I didn't know. And obviously, it would have been good to know from every point of view. If you and I have got serious cracks in the foundation of our faith, we need to discover so we can do something about it. I noticed that the early disciples, the followers of Jesus, were rock solid secure in what they believed. And I want my faith to be like that and yours to be like that. When Paul writes in his letter to the Romans in chapter eight, he says, I'm convinced, Ichi, I am fully persuaded that neither death or life or angels or demons or things in the present or the past or anything you can throw at me can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Can you hear how confident he is? He, he knows his foundations are firm and in place. He doesn't say on a good day with the wind behind, when things are going my way, I believe in a good God. It's important and it's possible for us to be rock solid in our foundations. He says to Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, not you can partially believe it. So I want to explain this morning as clearly as I can what these firm foundations are in the hope that you already are well-founded, but if, if somehow you've shifted onto shaky territory, that God is able to move you back to a firmer place. The big story of scripture that's consistent right throughout the whole of the 66 books of scripture is the story of how mankind fell out with God and what God has done to bring peace and the possibility of friendship between him and us all over again. And that large story, which God tells us of how the relationship breakdown is mended, is called the gospel, the good news. 
We don't, we don't often use the phrase gospel, frankly, anymore. In, in old-fashioned speak, people used to talk, didn't they, about gospel truth, meaning it was completely true from beginning to end. It was the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. At the heart of this good news, which is what the word gospel means, we need to know a couple of things about it. Number one, it's a gospel, it's news that God reveals to mankind. You and I could have guessed how to get right with God, but you would have guessed wrong. It needs God to speak out, to make clear how we can mend and bridge the gap, or we would still be alienated from him. And Paul says this in, in his letter to the Romans. He says, I'm not ashamed of the good news because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. For in the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Now, again, I don't know how many times you've used the word righteousness in the last couple of weeks, but probably not many. Righteousness, what does it mean? It means being put right. When we are righteous before God, we are put right before God. We can stand in his presence as friends without feeling shame or guilt or need to hide. And that condition can only come our way through the gospel that I'm going to explain. So there are two things I want to say just up front. I've said one already, you can't guess the gospel because you guess wrong. And secondly, you can't make up your own remedy. Well, you can try, but it won't work. A very sad chapter in my life was when a very good friend of mine was diagnosed as having cancer. He was younger than me and a close friend, and it's quite a few years ago now. And it was so sad to watch as somehow, I don't know why this happened or how this happened, he bought into a quack remedy and somehow convinced himself that, I can't remember exactly the details, but it was along the lines of if he drank enough carrot juice, everything would be fine. And of course it wasn't fine. He believed it would be, but it, it, it didn't end well. We can't, we're not free to make up easy remedies and think they will bring us into God's presence. We come into God's presence on God's terms. And secondly, it won't work just to pretend that we're not ill. In other words, it won't work just to pretend that we're already acceptable in God's sight and we can just mosey into his presence. This is a difficult point to make in our day and age. But actually, in the scriptures, it was something that they understood very well. A question the psalmist raises, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy presence? And the answer was, well, he has got a clean hands and a pure heart. And the problem is no one has, as we shall see. So I want to talk about the very heart of the good news, which is how we come to be able to stand in God's presence and know that we're loved and loved back in return. And there are some things that need to be said because if they're not being said, you're not hearing a gospel. And the name of Jesus Christ needs to be said. 
You know, it, for, for many, many years now, it's one of the interview questions that I always ask anyone who is to come on to my staff team is, I put it as friendly as I can, in a non-threatening way, please will you just explain the gospel to me in, in, you know, in less than two minutes, because people have written whole books about this. And if they don't get the name of Jesus Christ out in trying to explain the gospel, they're not telling me the gospel. There is no good news without the name of Jesus. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. You can't take the name of Jesus out of the gospel and be left with anything that will be a firm foundation at all. Well, let's see how this works out in practice. And I thought that rather than dive into more words like atonement and righteousness, we just look at that story that we had read. It, it's an incident. It, it's not just a story. It really, really happened. And you can probably remember it. Hopefully you can, because it was only read to you a couple of minutes ago. But actually, it paints rather a horrible picture. It, it's, not, it, it's not a pleasant incident at all. A picture of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law trying to trap Jesus. That's what we're told. We're told that was the motivation. Uh, aside, freebie for nothing. It, you're never in a good place when you get out of bed in the morning if what you're trying to do is trap Jesus. And also you won't win. Anyway, they tried it. And here's what they tried. They yank before him. They bring before him a woman caught in adultery. And they say, Moses said that if you're caught in adultery, you should be stoned and put to death. Now, what may not be obvious to you, but I can tell you because I've had the benefit of reading a number of commentaries, is this is clearly a honey trap situation. This didn't just happen. There are clues in what we're being told, even here, that this is a setup, a put-up job. Because according to the law, not just the woman should be brought forward for trial, but the man too. And not just that, the couple had to be caught, actually caught, in the act of adultery. And it would seem pretty obvious that the only way these conditions could be fulfilled, or would be fulfilled, would be a set-up job. She's been lured into a trap, and now they sling her at, Jesus' feet and say, well, what are you going to do about this? The law, justice, demands that she should be stained. Well, what does Jesus do? It's, it's, it's intriguing what he does. And it's described for us, did you notice, in a kind of eyewitness detail, what he does is he stoops down and he writes in the dirt. And I wonder what he wrote. It, it, I, uh, John, I wish you'd written down what he wrote. We, we can speculate what, what he wrote. Some people think that he didn't write anything, that he just doodled in the sand playing for time. Some people think that he wrote the names of the people that are standing in front of him who had brought the woman. That would be pretty powerful, wouldn't it? Some people think that he is actually writing the law down. But frankly, we don't actually know. But what we do know 
because John tells us, again, painting the picture for us, he says, Jesus straightened up. So he stands up from doodling in the dirt. He straightened up and he asks them a question. Let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone. And then he went back to writing. And John says, from the oldest first, they all disappeared. Now, what can we learn from this? Quite a bit, I think. I think we can see here probably the hardest part of the good news for me to explain to you, we can see here, which is the diagnosis is difficult to digest. And the diagnosis is we have all alienated ourselves from God. We have all sinned. At the start of his story, and superficially, it looked, didn't it, as if there were two classes of people. There were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And then there was this sinner woman who was caught in the act of adultery. But by the end of the story, we all know very, very clearly, including the participants in the story, they're all in the same boat. They have fallen short of God's perfect standard. That's why when Jesus said, you who are without sin, well, you throw the first stone then. And of course, the older ones, who are probably more inclined to be, to know themselves better, well, they realize they don't. They're in no condition to throw a stone at anyone. And friends, none of us are in any condition to throw a stone at anyone because we too, all of us have got this in common. We have fallen short of God's standard. This is definitely the hardest part of the gospel, the good news, to take on board. All of us have got memories, I'm sure, of the pandemic and the COVID test. And, and one of the weird things about COVID was you could have it and not know that you had it. The symptoms were too iffy to be able to be certain. And some people actually got through and have had COVID and never knew it. But the way you found out was, we all know, you took the COVID test and if the dreaded red line came up, oh, Bob's your uncle, you were sick. And the way that you find out that you too are a sinner is not to compare yourself to everyone else because everyone else is in the same boat. The, the way you, you do it is measure yourself up against Jesus Christ. And suddenly you and I look in a different legal together. Or another way, I don't really want to do this, but I'm willing to do it if you ask me and put me to it. I could sit down with you and I could go through the Ten Commandments with you and show you that you've broken all ten. God's perfect standard. And you say, no, I haven't, Rupert. You know, I, I haven't committed adultery. Well, Jesus says, if you've looked at someone lustfully, you've as good as committed adultery. But you could start with the very first one so you could save yourself the pain of going through the others. And that is, have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength, always? And if you say yes, you're a liar. Because none of us have. Absolutely none of us have. The only person who can honestly say that they've done 
and only done the whole of our life, everything that pleases the Lord God is Jesus Christ. And th this story just, within this story you see, yes, the woman is a sinner, but so are the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And if we'd been standing there that day, we too would have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. But we also see in this story that God has love for all the people in the story. And when he stops doodling and gets up, only the woman is left. And he says, Did, didn't they condemn you? Well, I don't condemn you either. And I want you to know that a large part of the good news is Jesus says, if you come to me, we can be friends. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I'll refresh you, says Jesus. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you'll find rest for your souls. That is at the heart of a good news. It comes hard on the heels of realizing that God's diagnosis of our condition is that we're wretched, is that he loves us regardless of how we are. But it comes with conditions attached. The reason I asked that we had the first reading, what Jesus first said when he broke into the public ministry was because he actually gives a key here. He says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is close at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And the key to what we need to do to enjoy God's presence is those two things. And I want to explain what they are, repent and believe. This story that we just had read, it doesn't actually end just with the words, Jesus saying, neither do I condemn you. Jesus does say that. But he also says, go now and leave this life of sin. He's saying to the lady, the girl, the woman, there's a better way of life for you to live than this. And I want to lead you in it. You need to change your mind and start again. And he says that to all of us, all of us. And not just once, but often, every day actually, if you give him a chance. He, it, it's the Holy Spirit's work in me and in you that he should have permission to prod us and say, Rupert, this attitude you've got, you know, needs to change. It's not like me enough. I, I am at work in your life, Rupert, but those thoughts, they don't belong in the kingdom. So repent and believe the gospel. Turn around, change your mind. That's what the word repent literally means. I am concerned today that we sell a cheap gospel if we're not careful, or we even believe a cheap gospel. It's a bit like when you write a reference for someone, if you've ever been asked to write a reference for somebody, a job reference, pretty much even the worst person in the world in your employment or in your firm, you can write a good reference so long as you just don't tell the bad bits. It's possible. But that's not the truth, is it? And just the same as in a court of law, you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, 
and nothing but the truth. On the internet, you can buy certain drugs that are, are trading as, as if they're the real thing, but they're not. They're, they're, they're cheap products and you don't actually know what you're swallowing. It is the drug you thought you bought. With the gospel that I'm talking about, how we get right with God, if it doesn't mention Jesus, it's not the gospel. And if it doesn't mention the need to repent, to turn your life around and let Jesus be Lord of it, it is not the gospel. The real gospel always contains repentance. And it always contains belief. Repent and believe. What do I mean by belief? I think a better word sometimes is trust. Trust. We're all masters of trust. When you sat down in your seat, you trusted that the seat would hold you up. When you, when you get on a plane, you trust the pilot will deliver you to the right destination. When you let someone drive you in a car, you, you are believing and trusting that they're up to the job. It's an active thing. Jesus says, if you want to be in my kingdom, you're going to have to turn around and then trust me as I direct you with the rest of my life. It's something that really, really challenges me is how best to communicate to you in a way that you'll get this whole business of falling short of God and sin and the problem of getting into his presence. And I think the reason I'm so challenged by it, frankly, is because for years of my life, I sat through sermon after sermon when I was at school, and it seemed to me that the preacher so often beat me over the head, telling me what a sinner I was. And all that did for me was make me feel bad. But also, it didn't really make me want to change. But what did was when I read through an account of Jesus' life. And of course, I know now I can, I'm a bit more kind of savvy, and I know it was the Holy Spirit that woke me up. And yes, you do need to hear that we've fallen short of God, but I think the way I refresh the love of Jesus in me is to remember how much he loves us and his death on the cross, because it raises to my mind a big question. Jesus, why did you willingly go to death upon the cross? You're not a fool. You could have avoided it if you wanted to. What was it that you were achieving on the cross? And I can answer that question. It was this. It's like God saying, because I love you this much, Rupert. I love you this much. And someone had to pay the penalty, the price of your shortcomings, and I did on the cross. And it's like I'm reaching out to you with one hand and to God the Father with the other and I'm introducing you all over again and I'll do that as many times as I have to because I am the secure foundation of your right relationship with God. And friends, that is the only secure foundation. Someone sent me a uh, talk to listen to about a week ago by R.T. Kendall. R.T. Kendall is, is now well progressed in years, at least in his 80s. And uh, in the middle of his talk, 
He asked a really good question, and so I'm going to ask you the same question. He asked his congregation this. He said, when you die and you stand before God on judgment day, which he said you will do, and you will, suppose God were to ask you this question. Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And then he said, if your answer is anything other than because your son died for me and has forgiven me and loves me this much and I trust him, if your answer is anything other than that, friends, you're on a wrong foundation. That is the only firm foundation, true foundation of our confidence. And if that is your confidence this morning, and I hope it is, great, then you know that you have rock solid secure. But if somehow you've slipped away from that, it's time to revise what you're standing on. It's a curious thing about the cross, and with this I'll come to a place, that it both humbles us and gives us hope at the same time. John Stock once said about the cross, nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. Every time we look at it, Christ seems to say to us, I'm here because of you. It's your sin I'm bearing, your curse I'm suffering, your debt I'm paying, your death I'm dying. But set against that, I love to remember what William Temple, who was a former Archbishop of Canterbury once said, he said, some people say there cannot be a God of love because if there was and he looked upon the world, his heart would break. And the Christian points to the cross and says, yes, it did break. Some people say it's God who made the world. It's he who should bear the load. And a Christian points to the cross and says he did bear it. And my friends, this is, this is amazingly wonderful news for us. I can't put it better than this hymn puts it. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me saviour or I die. But as I close, I'm, I'm gonna lead us in a prayer because it's, it's so easy for us to stray from this foundation. You know, if your answer would, would have been to God, well, God, I've done my best. That won't wash. Change your answer. Make it your decision to say, because I receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ. If your answer was, well, I must be okay because I went to church for years. That won't wash. Church going doesn't make you a Christian. Believing and trusting in Jesus Christ does. If your answer is because you love me, you died for me, you paid the price for me, praise the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming into the world because you love us. Thank you that you are the good news. Thank you that your love covers all our sin. Your forgiveness is great. And we want to exchange with you our filth 
for your forgiveness. Our way for your way. Come and lift the burden off our shoulders and set us free to love you, to be obedient to you, to enjoy you. Thank you that you died for us and rose again to give us hope. We want to follow you faithfully. So look upon us with your kindness. Lead us by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.